This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal and in this episode we'll be speaking to two distinguished authors, 2014 prize winner Helen MacDonald for her incredible book H is for Hawk and Philip Hoare who won the prize in 2009 for his book Leviathan or The Whale. We'll also hear from Tom Tivnan, managing editor at The Bookseller, on how nonfiction is performing in the bookshops and the impact that winning a prize like the Bailey Gifford can have on an author's career. But first, Helen, Philip, a very warm welcome to you both. So, Philip, why don't we go with you first? Uh, well, actually, I really think we should uh, uh, define each other as uh, that might be more fun. But um, And I think actually because there is at the heart of both of our books obsession um, I don't think we could be writers if we weren't obsessive. We had a conversation, as you know, just before we came on air, which ranged from albatrosses to uh, 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 God knows what. But it's um, so I think, you know, the, the thing about writing a book which is nonfiction, which includes yourself in it which immediately transforms the notion of being nonfiction, which is such a ridiculous phrase. I mean, I was doing a festival with Jeff Diadan in uh, Wellington, New Zealand. He says, you don't define poetry as nonfiction, do you? I mean, it's just, I'm not saying not elevating us to the, uh, to the level of poetry, but uh, it's that sense, what is this thing we're trying to do? And, and I think in my case, I was looking back to my childhood relationship with the sea, which was a very fearful one. I never learned to swim. I didn't learn to swim until I was 29. Um, I was very scared of the sea and what lay in it. And of course, the biggest and most fearsome thing that lay in it was the whale. Um, and so it was coming to terms with that through a very roundabout way. You know, I'd already published five, six books by the time I came to the whale. And it's like the whale had been waiting there in the ocean for me. Helen, what about you? I'm not going to ask you to try and define Philip's book. Uh, tell us about H's for Hawk. How would you describe it to someone who you would like to be drawn to reading it? Well, I guess, uh, you know, the, the quickest way of saying it, which is not particularly um, encouraging, is that it's a, it's a book which is nonfiction and it's about a miserable woman, a dead author and a hawk. Um, I'm not really selling it there, um, but it's basically the story of how it's, um, I lost my father very suddenly, I was about 37, and I decided to deal with my grief by um, training a goshawk, it's kind of the Christopher Walken of the, of the bird world, this sort of mad, murderous um, creatures. And, um, you know, I don't recommend this as a way of dealing with bereavement generally. Um, but so it's book, not a self-help it's book. It's not a self-help book. No, it's not a book <laughs> like I, I was sad, then I got a cat, then I was happy again. So um, it's the story of this very strange and charged time where I tamed and trained this bird and watched her fly every day um, and really went kind of nuts and then came back to the human world. And then tied up with that story is the story of a very sad and phenomenally interesting person called T.H. White, a writer who's best known for um, his magisterial retelling of the Arthurian legend, The Once and Future King. And um, he tried to train a goshawk in the 1930s, made a terrible job of it. And I wanted him in the book. I wanted his voice in that book for lots of reasons. One of which was I thought that his story is a lesson in how we can all do great harm without realizing we're doing it if we don't have the tools to know how to love things, including ourselves. And also because I, I had this kind of issue with nature books generally. 
I wanted the, my book to have more than one voice in it. So many of the books we wrote about nature are a person sort of pointing out plants and explaining them to the reader and then basically saying, aren't you lucky to have me explain this to you? And I wanted mine to be much more complex and much more kind of um, broken up. And his voice was important in that in that telling. And of course, Philip, uh, in your case, the, the voice of Herman Melville and Moby Dick uh, is very present. Um, I, I'm going to talk a little more about all of that in, in just a moment. Let's go back to the time when you won this prize. And I think it changed quite a lot for both of you. So, so uh, Helen, let's start with you. Do you remember the moment when your name was called? Yes, I do. Um, for some reason, I'd gone to a hairdresser and had this ridiculous beehive. I decided that I was going to have a beehive hairdo for the Samuel Johnson Prize. And my mother came, which was adorable. And you have a very lovely gamine short haircut. I have a very moment. short hair now. I've gone, I've gone full short hair. But I remember trying to eat my dinner. This is a sort of dinner during the kind of, uh, you know, the beginning of the awards. And I kept forgetting that it, I, why I was there and eating this delicious food and then remembering why I was there. And then I couldn't eat a thing. And then the, you know, when, when it came that, that the book that I'd written had, had won the prize, I was absolutely thunderstruck. And one of the, one of the silliest things was that I was whisked away and um, for a whole round of interviews, there were phone interviews, there were BBC interviews. And all I could think, because I was so stunned, all I could think was, why aren't I having pudding like all the other guests? And it was so <laughs> bizarre and just a classic moment of, you know, not realising really the, the magnitude of what had happened. It was, it was phenomenal. It was so exciting. And I was so delighted, particularly for my editor and my publicist and all the people. Because I think a book is like a boat. You know, you, you, can, you can sail a boat on your own, but, you know, it, it, it takes a whole crew to really make it go. Um, Philip, yeah. what about you, your memories of that moment? Well, uh, my striking memory of it is is coming in and my, a friend of mine had lent me a Dior evening jacket. Uh, which How the... fancy that you have friends who have Dior <laughs> evening jackets, Philip. <laughs> and, uh, Most uh, impressive. Which, uh, which I thought I myself was looking at the bee's knees and the literally added to the telegraph threw a glass of wine over me, but entirely by <laughs> by mischance. But um, but you know so, what? So you were soaked. I you was soaked. soaked. I was sitting did, there, like wonderful. smelling of sort of wine. Uh, but um, and it, but the thing is, nothing prepares you for that moment. When everything changes. And the funny thing was that it, I don't know where you where you where you did yours. Was it King's Place? Was it where the the Guardian is? And it was funny because yeah. as soon as that moment and it was announced, and it, you just become a different person. And I remember being whisked up this elevator and waving to my my best friend and my sister who was sitting in the bottom, as if I'd been sort of somehow transported, like ascended <laughs> to some new unearthly realm. Um, and that thing about being interviewed afterwards, and you know, you're in such a buzz, but you really. The party's going on without me. <laughs> there was a really funny moment, actually. I was being interviewed and I really wasn't quite with it. I was so astounded and, uh, and amazed. And I remember at one point I sort of faltered. Instead of saying that um, people, you know, I wanted people to like my book, I think I said the people. And this terrible, terrible <laughs> phrase reappeared in stories about me talking about the people. And it was just, I still cringe when I think of that, as if I'm some sort of minor royal, you know. Um, how, it, was, it was astonishing. How did it change your career as writers, Philip? Um, well, what's really nice about it is, is that you, so your back catalogue gets a, another look in, which is really nice. Um, but... It's just, it's just really exciting that people value books in that way. And actually, uh, the whole the, the 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 
the knock-on effect is actually that you feel you you feel sort of you haven't been wasting your time. But actually, it's really nice to share that with people. Um, and because you suddenly have a big, much bigger audience, I mean, it really does open up your audience. Um, so, you know, Helen and I are both really passionate about what we write about. I mean, we don't, we would be doing this if we weren't being paid for it, if we weren't winning a prize. So it, it's just the mar- a marvellous feeling that you feel, um, you feel wanted. I, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of genre busting notion of, of both your books. Um, that there is at the heart of both of them, as you say, Philip, obsession, but but also that there's an arc, there's a journey that takes place because it is also in part autobiographical. Um, that that there is something that happens to each of you at the end of the book, by which time you have transformed yourselves and in the process the reader has shifted a little bit. And and I, I'd quite like both of you to say a little bit about whether you had set out to do that. Helen. I um I guess I tried very hard to tell the story that I felt I'd experienced. Now it took me about five years to get round to writing the book because I guess I needed to become a different person. I was writing about myself as a character. I remember those days very vividly. But I remember even at the end of that long, strange year with the hawk, I remember realizing that what I was going through was a very, very old story. It was much older than me. It was basically a trip to the underworld and back. Um, You know, after a loss, you fall off the world for a, a little while and then you have to come back and you come back changed. And what I hadn't expected and i think that the the prize you know this wonderful unexpected moment what it did was um it made my book more accessible for many people who would bought it because of the it winning the prize and then i would go on on tour and i would meet many many people who wanted to talk to me about their own griefs and their own losses and they all seemed the same shape as mine and it became intensely moving and humbling um just just meeting people everywhere who wanted to talk about those things that had happened to them that are quite secretive things in today's culture. It's very hard to talk about loss and grief. It's interesting you talk about falconry as an addiction that's as dangerous as if I'd taken a needle and shot myself with heroin, which is so potent yeah. as a notion. I really did identify with that hawk, my wonderful goshawk called Mabel, who was kind of half leopard and half dragon. I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be this solitary, self-possessed creature who lived in the present, who was powerful and feral and wild. And I identified with her so much when I was going out hawking with her that I kind of lost lost sight of what it was like to be a human. And I think all of us go through um, periods in our lives where we're gripped by fascinations or by compulsions or by, for example, like a you know a really passionate love affair has a very similar feel. You know, obviously, my I was not a romantically involved with my hawk, but that sense of everything about you changing, that your compass becoming this other thing, this other person or other creature, was very much part of the book. And I think we all respond to that. Uh, Philip, the obsession for you came at what stage? You know, you've talked about your fear of the sea and learning to swim as an adult rather than a child. But the fascination with this vast mammal, I just wonder what you what you were thinking about when you were writing it in terms of your memories of that obsession. I think it was to do with my physical self, the way um, I see myself in the world. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big person. 
I'm a thin, little, thin, scraggy person. I've always been, well, I, 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 I was just about to say I've always been fearful. Actually, I'm not. Um, I'm not a fearful person. But I felt that the, my fear of the water and my fear of these animals, which was kind of ridiculous because I knew that they didn't harm human beings. But there was something that that represented, and it was my fear of of the future, I think, in a way. Um, and and seeing the sea particularly, which is I've been, my two books after Leviathan have been about the sea, about the sense of the mortality that it represents. So it's it's full of life. It gives us life. You know, most of our air that we breathe come from it. Um, it still has this residual, extraordinary safari park stock of animals um, which are so remote from us. And yet when you're in the sea with them, as I am in, in the book with the whale, you're physically connected to them and therefore metaphysically connected to them. So the whale becomes a great carrier of so many things of all the things we project on animals, you know, our whole relationship with animals is so messed up because of this anthropomorphization. Um, but that's also glorious. That's such a beautiful segue into asking you to read uh, the the section at the end, which I don't think it's it would spoil it for anyone who hasn't read the book, but anyone who has read the book and from hearing you talk about it in the way that you are now just sums up so beautifully the relationship between man and the whale, but you and the particular whale. In a moment that seemed to go on forever, catching my breath in my perspex mask, my limbs frozen with panic and excitement, my body held in suspense, not wanting to go forward but never wanting to go back, the distance between us closed. The great grey head turned towards me, looking like an upright block of granite, overwhelmingly monumental. Its entirety was my own. That was all I could see, far taller and wider than me, the front end of an animal which, it suddenly occurred to me, had one major disadvantage over the puny human swimming towards it. It could not see me. What if it just kept on coming, the head down, bringing its ponderous dome to bear in my direction? Then I began to hear it. Click, click, click. A rapid series of sounds, creaking, I felt them rather than heard them. In my breastbone, my ribcage had become a sound box. The whale was recreating its own picture of me in its head. An MRI scan of the intruder, an outline of an alien in its world. I felt my body let go and I peed into the water. A ridiculous thought passed through my mind. I had arrived unannounced, only to lose control of my bodily functions and piss on my host's doormat. Then, at the crucial moment, the head turned, bowing slightly as if in identification. Not edible. Not interesting. From sheer fear, the moment turned into something else. I realised this was a female. A great mother hanging before me, intensely alive. For all her disinterest, it seemed, there was an umbilical cord between us. Mammal to mammal, her huge greyness, my unmothered paleness. Lost 
and found another orphan. One of the things I love about that passage and indeed about all your book um, that seems to me really special and is kind of doing some of the things that I tried to do in mine um, is that that recognition throughout the book, as you were saying, that we have... Um, we can't see animals. It's very hard to see animals without the layers of meaning we projected upon them. But sometimes, just sometimes you have an encounter where all those human meanings just sort of push to one side and you can see the actual living creature. And those moments to me seem, you know, some of the greatest epiphanies that can happen in a person's life is to see an animal as it really is. And that, that passage just, I've got tears in my eyes. <laughs> it, it's so interesting that you respond like that, Helen, because it, it, you're, in your book, you know, it, it's so clear, this evocation of the hawk's psychology. And, and it's, it, for, for the reader, it's quite clear that what you're doing is you're trying to summon up the mental world of this bird. And, and I'm so interested in that relationship between the human and the animal that, that I was utterly struck in both of your books by the, the language that both of you use. And, and your first encounter with Mabel, who is the big character, who is the H for Hawk, um, is so beautiful. I wonder if you would just read the moment that you set eyes on Mabel, a, a bird that you've bought online for about £800. That's it, about $1,000. It sounds worse than it actually was. <laughs> I, I, it wasn't just Craigslist. You know, I did actually find a, a, a reputable breeder. Um, Yes, it was an astonishing meeting. And I mean, I don't like to sort of introduce really very much about things I'm going to read from the book. But but really, this is a case of me trying to capture in language what this hawk was in that moment and failing over and over and over again. So picture the scene. We're on a Scottish quayside. A man's coming towards me with uh, some bo- with a, you know, boxes in his hand, uh, made from old TV um, boxes, in fact. And we have to get the birds out to check that the ring numbers on the legs match those in the in the forms, the government forms. It's extremely well regulated. It's not just, you know, um, you know, some birds in boxes. These have been monitored all through their lives. Another hinge untied. Concentration. Infinite caution. Daylight irrigating the box. Scratching talons, another thump and another thump. The air turned syrupy, slow, flecked with dust, the last few seconds before a battle. And with a last bow pulled free, he reached inside, and amidst a whirring, chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering, and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box. And in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us, and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She's a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a griffin from the pages of an illuminated bestiary, something bright and distant like gold falling through water. A broken marionette of wings, legs, and light-splashed feathers. She's wearing jesses, and the man holds them. And for one awful long moment, she's hanging head downward, wings open like a turkey in a butcher's shop. Only her head is turned right way up, and she is seeing more than she has ever seen before in her whole short life. Her world was an aviary, no larger than a living room, and then it was a box. But now it's this, 
and she can see everything. The point source glitter on the waves, a diving cormorant a hundred yards out, pigment flakes under wax on the lines of parked cars, far hills and a heather on them, and miles and miles of sky where the sun spreads on dust and water and illegible things moving in it that are white scraps of gulls. Everything is startling and new-stamped on her entirely astonished brain. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Uh, what's astonishing about that is the focus of that picture. When I read that and I reviewed your book, um, I was so jealous because you just, oh, my God. It t and it, it kind of comes down to the eye. It's a bit like the bit in Psycho where you zoom. Yeah, it's exactly like Psycho, in, my book. Zoom, <laughs> and, and there is something terribly well, what, fearful and exciting. What I was that. trying to do in that piece was really kind of in that section was really kind of... Um, take it along the same arc as the book itself, which is that I start off looking at something and then by the end of that section, I'm inside the hawk's mind looking at everything. And that's kind of why I try to make it like that. But um, I like the psychoanalogy. That's, that's really exciting. I, I, I'm really interested in the extent to which both of you consciously thought that what you were writing was an attempt to extend the existing boundaries of nature writing. Philip? Yeah, well, I... I that happened for me a while back, actually, a, a book I wrote about a military hospital, which sounds really much less exciting than your premise that you just had, the hawk and the uh, grief. But, uh, um, and when I was writing that, uh, a friend of mine uh, who directed um, a film I made for the BBC about uh, Moby Dick uh, gave me a copy of W.G. Sebald's uh, The Rings of Saturn, which I know... This is Helen. the Anglo-German writer who kind of did a lot of genre-busting writing, an extraordinary writer. And that was a total liberation to read that. And I, I'm sure it was for you, Helen, as it's well. It's astonishing work, really astonishing. Uh, go on. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, the family's always gone to Southwold on the Suffolk coast every year since I was tiny. You know, me paddling around, scared, screaming scared of jellyfish with, you know, blue lips running out the sea when I was small. And then I read The Rings of Saturn, which is an account of Sebald walking this place that I knew like the back of my hand and suddenly making it redolent with history, so rich, so strange, so beautiful. And I just thought, oh, wow, you can do stuff with nature writing that isn't what I thought. It, it is interesting, isn't it, that that rumination, uh, the mix of uh, memoir, travel writing, literary criticism, quirky historical interventions and photographs, which well, is something that you've done, Philip. Uh, yeah, and uh, people sort of think that I've been subordinate in doing that. In fact, it's, that really, for me, goes back to my love of childhood encyclopedias uh, and the extraordinary effect that a picture on a page can have. Um, I used to open my encyclopedia, the bit that dealt with fish, and when I saw this photograph of an anglerfish there, you know, these fishes with mouths bigger than themselves and these strange luminous lures. I felt if I touched this picture, I might be actually dragged down to the benthic abyss with, with the actual animal. Um, so for me, uh, and actually reading Moby Dick, which I tried to read three times before I wrote Leviathan and finally made it because actually, because actually I was, at that point, I sort of translated myself to New England and to Melville's mindset and to the mindset of these men who were doing these stupid, crazy, um, and at the time, probably very exciting things of going hunting whales. It's interesting because your obsession is not just with the whale. Your obsession is with Melville and with Captain Ahab. Yeah, and the, and the way that we 
you know, I mean, and that is, I, I think in many ways, Moby Dick is the first, has the first passages of actually na natural history writing, really, in, a, in its modern shape and form. Um, so, yeah, so, or, and, and, but, the, but the whole idea of, it's more like, it's more like, ex because the book is an experience, you know, Helen and I both write about experience. It's not an academic uh, project. It's not a, it's not, it's not, we're not delivering some sort of paper. It's something that we have to write about because it's something that's happened to us. And we want to, we want to work out what it is. What I find most interesting in both these books is that it is full of facts, but it's also full of myth. Helen, how important was it to you to to leave the reader with some sense of what falconry is all about, not just the relationship between the human and these birds of prey? Well, facts are wonderfully um, seductive, aren't they? I mean, you know, when you're writing about nature, you're always struggling. You know, we've got this odd relationship with that wonderfully distanced, authoritative voice that I loved in the books about nature from when I was a ch you know child. Um, the book that tells you how it is. So I, I loved kind of writing a little bit in that tone. Um, and I think falconry is a fascinating subject. And I wanted to get in, you know, all the different vocabulary I wanted. To, but I also wanted to get that little child in, that little child who was, you know, slightly spectrumy, who learned all the terms when she was like sort of seven or something and would rec recount them to her mother as she cleaned the, you know, bathroom floor. So um, I wanted the my own journey to learn about falconry and to understand the myth, the mythos of it and what it was doing to be in the book. I wanted it to be what I guess anthropologists have been doing for years. They've made it a reflexive account. You know, the character in the book that's me is kind of dumb to start with. After she loses her dad, she's kind of like, she just hasn't got a clue. So the book, I think, ho I hopefully, as I go through all the myths of falconry and all the dangers and all the different historical stuff, the character starts to learn about life. And I think that all all authors really do have, it's a bit like philosophers famously who get a reputation by banging on about the same thing their entire career. I think all writers have got a subject. They've got a deep, deep heart subject. And I have a really quite worrying feeling that my deepest subject is death and mortality. And, um, you know, and that's so twined up with love in my mind that I don't think it's possible for me to write about anything without those two things being being present. So the, the, those are the great sort of myths at the, the heart of it all, I think, are love and death. And and your training of Mabel does, does give you the grace to be happy by the end. Yes. Um, she taught me an awful lot. And again, not in a simple way. So I let her hunt like a wild hawk. So I was basically seeing death, you know, daily. And um, it's kind of gruesome. You know, when a goshawk catches something, it just starts eating. It's obviously immobilized it. And at some point, the animal's going to die. And I couldn't let that happen. So I'd have to run in and dispatch these poor creatures and put them out of their misery. And I began to understand how tiny the borders between life and death are and how short and fragile we are as humans. And, you know, it's a bit of a kind of old chestnut to say that, but it's made me really aware of how precious we all are and how much, you know, I think I've learned to love the world and love people loads more since since that happened and since the book was written. I think the, writing the book was very, very important in piecing together some of those issues for me. Philip, how did writing the book transform you, do you think? It kind of reinvented me in many ways. It, it sort of, I discovered something I was trying to get to for a long time 
And I think it's a lot to do with this sense of one's identity and how writing can help you find your identity and express that identity. I find a voice for it, literally. Um, to do that through the, the kind of lens of the natural world is really, um, it's really liberating because you are both dealing with human emotions because all of our relations to the natural world are, are filtered through us. But you're also dealing with a sense of responsibility, a sense of pure beauty, unalloyed beauty. You know, there's no... when it, John Fowles wrote a wonderful essay called The Tree in which he, he said, you can't write about nature. The, the, the moment of witness is all it is. You can't write about it. So in a sense, what Helen and I are trying to do is, is impossible. But we have to try and do the impossible because, you know, we compulsive people and um but it is it is that moment of witness and of grace and i think that's what you're saying actually. It, it is in, very very interesting you know I, I grew up in a in a you know deeply non-religious family and and i kept reaching for the right words to describe certain things that happened in the book certain encounters certain intuitions and there were no secular words that described them i had to reach for religious terms things like grace i think are absolutely embedded in how we experience mm -hmm. The natural world. Do, do you think that the best stories are true? That's the axiom that goes alongside this prize. Yeah, we better say yes, hadn't we? Well, you don't have to. <laughs> but what's true when it comes to a story? I mean, yeah. there are only a few stories, aren't there? There are only a few stories, and the truth—those truths that you have to really dig for and get to. When I, sorry, I'm talking too much, but when I started writing my book, I. I kept trying to be much more British about it and I kept leaving the emotion out and thought people just want to hear about the hawk. And I kept coming up against this brick wall and then I realised that I had to get to that truth, that truth that was how it was. And of course, you know, that's very partial and very, you know, centred in myself. But at the same time, as soon as I realised I had to be true to the reader, it began to flow. And I think readers know when things feel, feel right. They feel honest and they feel true. It's also a sense of perspective, I think, putting, you know, especially at this moment in human uh, history, um, we have to realise that we do not hold dominion over the natural world. I was born and brought up as a Catholic. I still practice Catholicism, but this sense of this biblical dominion it has been a disaster in many ways, as has mm, the Enlightenment in a way, the combination of those two things, which we're still fighting over now. Um, and, I, and I think it's this sense of, Knowing how little we are in that story, um, but also how much effect we can have on it. And, and for me, for me, writing about the whale was falling into a story. It's a really interesting question because it's happening now. It's an ongoing story. You know, writing about T.H. White, writing about Noel Coward, as I have done, or Oscar Wilde, you know, they're bookended by birth and death dates. This story is happening now. It's, it's electric, it's exciting, it's extremely frightening because we don't know what's going to happen. Um, and we have our part to play in that. Yeah. You know, we, you know, one of the great things, and I, it gets very depressing talking about nature, as you know, mm. nowadays, but I always try to look at something positive that's come out of, you know, this, 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 this mess. Um, 
And, you know, one thing that we have done is we have saved the whales in many ways, yeah. you know, that we stopped, stopped, stopped hunting them within my lifetime. Um, so it is that sense of being in the story. Whatever John Fowles says, I am so delighted, and all your readers are too, that you continued to to write about uh, nature in the way that you have. Um, Helen, Philip, thank you so much. Uh, really fascinating to hear your process of writing and also the genre-busting way in which you have dealt with talking about autobiography and nature and history and social history and so on. Thanks so much for being with us. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Really interesting also to hear about how winning the prize has had an impact on book sales. Our next guest is Tom Tivnan of The Bookseller. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit more about how nonfiction generally is doing in bookshops. Is this something that people are drawn to? Yeah, increasingly over the last few years. Last year in 2018, uh, 882 million pounds worth of nonfiction books were sold. Print books, I should say, were sold in the UK. That's um, a 5% rise on the previous year and the biggest sales peak in eight years. Um, and we've seen for the past four years an incremental rise in nonfiction sales. And how does it correlate specifically to nonfiction prizes? Well, nonfiction prizes can be a huge influence on a author's career or on the book in particular. I should say, back up and say that there are fewer nonfiction prizes than there are fiction prizes. There seems to be quite a lot of uh, fiction prizes out there. But the Bailey Gifford Prize in particular has always been one that has given a huge boost. Every single winner of the prize for the past 15 years, I happen to run the numbers just this morning, um, has had a massive, at least 100% sales growth of their book before and after the prize. That's astonishing. Yeah. I guess part of it is because the prize has been around for 21 years and there has to be some sort of retailer buy-in. The bookshops know what the Bailey Gifford Prize or the Samuel Johnson as was means and the customers now know. Um, but last year, Chernobyl, um, the book by Sergei Plotky, rose 900% in sales from, from the week before to the week after. And this is hardback sales, which yeah. is incredible. And it's gone on to sell really well in paperback. The paperback came out in January, helped a little by the Chernobyl HBO series, which isn't based on his book, but you know has been marketed in the shops. But yes, that seal of approval from the Bailey Gifford is is one of the ones. And to be frank, it's probably the Bailey Gifford, the Booker for fiction, and the Woman's Prize for fiction are the three ones you can always count on, which retailers always put their oomph behind. Is there also a, a, an, an impact that's made on the long list and the short list? So it's not just the winner. Do the, is the short list in particular gets quite a lot of... Um... Yeah, yep, there is a boost. We, also, a lot of these books are specialist um, and a lot of them have been unknown beforehand. So many of them, and particularly they're often out in hard cover, will only be selling in a few hundred copies a week. Once they get the short listing, it goes up five, four, fivefold. And is it possible to talk about uh, a particular genre that does better than others? Like in, in, in the last podcast, we were talking to two historians, Anthony Beaver and Margaret Macmillan. And, and, and in this one, our guests have been writers who are really hard to categorize, but yeah. both Philip Hoare and Helen MacDonald, I think, did really well in terms yeah. of sales. There's a few things that are really driving the market right now. One is called what the trade calls rather... It's a, this is a bad term, but it's called memoirs that matter. All right, so it's basically books that are memoirs from people who are non-celebs, 
but that touch on certain aspects of, of a bigger issue. Uh, in many ways, Helen MacDonald kicked this off with H.S. Fahawk because her book is a memoir, but it's also about grief. And so it's books like that that really hit a nerve. Um, the second biggest book of last year was Adam Kay's This Is Going to Hurt, which is his memoir, but it's about the NHS, and it's about the difficulties that junior doctors have. That was a huge, huge bestseller. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when Helen was talking about her book, she was talking about herself as a character in the book mm. and distancing herself. But what you're, what you're suggesting is that there really has to be some authenticity and some connection with the audience about a bigger issue. Is, is it true to say, I mean, when you look at something like uh, Philippe Sands or, or Anthony Beaver, you know, these are, these are people who are, you know, huge figures in, in you know, and Margaret Macmillan also in, in, in their own right. And they've, they've got these careers before they come to this particular thing of writing this yeah. book that's done really well. I mean, it, it, it does. Is it possible to say that these things do actually change people's lives? I, I would say Absolutely. Um, and particularly in that sort of end, the Anthony Beaver, uh, Philippe Sands sort of end, uh, I think that's another strand that's really popular right now. Um, again, there's a clunky term that the trade uses. It's called smart nonfiction. Um, basically, it's people are looking to experts to show them the way through certain either historical events or things that have happened in their lives. Complicated issues. Complicated issues. I, and I would say that this this is sort of a um, reaction to the fake news that we get. You can't necessarily trust social media. You can't trust maybe mainstream media. You can't trust what's coming out of the president of the United States' mouth. Um, it's not the 140 characters that someone does in an instant. It's considered. It is real. And, and you would argue that actually there really is a market for these sorts of um, very serious, considered, lots and lots and lots of pages between hard covers. I mean, you know, these are the sorts of things that people said for a very long time that people have stopped reading and so on. And, and it's just not true, is it? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I think one of the hottest areas of publishing right now is that publishers are keen to find the next big smart nonfiction star. Outside of, say, crime writing, I think that's the really what people are hunting for. And it's quite interesting because publishers have long not really looked at the long game with nonfiction because it was a celebrity memoir, one-off, you make your money and you get on to the next thing. But now they're looking to get an author who can write sensibly, poignantly, well about an issue and can continue that relationship. So they're not thinking about just one book. They're thinking three, four, five books down the line. And they don't worry necessarily then about how they can market this because with a celebrity, it's so easy to market. Yeah, but celebrity has a bad side too because it's easy to market, but you have to pay that celebrity, I don't know, 500,000 pounds to write their book. And if they don't sell it, you know, it, it's a better crapshoot to put a little marketing spend behind these sort of unknowns and try to get their stories out. And that's probably why these big books, the smart nonfiction, the memoirs that matter that are selling well now have some sort of hook behind them, some sort of larger issue, because that is compelling to people in the media to, you know, if it's about dementia, if it's about the Holocaust and that effect on your family, then that is a great hook for story.
Fascinating stuff. Tom uh, Tivnan, thank you very much indeed. That's all we've got time for today. But do join us next time when we will be following the 2019 prize as it unfolds in the autumn. The eagerly awaited long list will be announced early in September with the short list following in October. The 21st winner of the prize will be announced on the 19th of November at a dinner. That will be generously hosted by the Blavatnik Family Foundation, who are also sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget to sign up to our newsletter on our website, www.thebaileygiffordprize.co.uk, and follow us on social media at BG Prize on Twitter and at the Bailey Gifford Prize on Instagram. Bye for now. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. 